This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hey, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Today on the program, my guest is Rachel Krantz, journalist and author of the book Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. Well, it's natural for men to want to roam, but women have this inherent interest in being more monogamous. The research doesn't actually back that up. Like a lot of the contemporary sexual research is finding women are having more trouble with long-term monogamy and loss of novelty in romantic relationships, that we tend to be more, our sex drive is more linked to variety. Rachel Krantz is one of the founding editors of Bustle, the online women's magazine. And in fact, she named the site. She served as senior features editor there for three years and senior news editor before that. She has also worked at the Daily Beast as homepage editor and at the nonprofit Mercy for Animals as their lead writer. Rachel Krantz, for such a young writer, is quite decorated. She is the recipient of a Peabody Award, the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights International Radio Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, and the Edward R. Murrow Award for her work as an investigative reporter with YR Media. As a journalist, her work has appeared all over the place, not only at Bustle, but also at The Guardian, Vox, Daily Beast, Newsweek, High Times, USA Today, Publishers Weekly, BuzzFeed Books, you name it. Rachel Krantz and I in conversation in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Crossing, publisher of the novel Blue by Emily Prophet. Blue is about a Haitian woman traveling alone from Miami to Port-au-Prince. She finds comfort at the airport, pondering the silence that surrounds her homeland, her mother, her aunts, and her own interior thoughts. Between two places, she sees how living in poverty keeps women silent, forging their identities around practicality and resilience. From a distance, she is drawn inevitably homeward toward her family in the glittering blue Caribbean Sea. Blue by Emily Prophet, translated by Tina Cover, available now from Amazon Crossing. Amazon Crossing publishes award-winning and best-selling books from around the globe, making international literature accessible to many readers for the first time. For more information, visit apub.com. So before we get started with Rachel Krantz, I will give a quick book update as I have been doing lately. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I have a book of my own coming out in May. It is a novel and a work of autofiction called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. 
the publication date for which is uh, May 10th. And as I've been saying in recent episodes, I'm in a bit of a holding pattern right now in this pocket of time in between locking the text and sending the book off to the printer and then waiting for publication. And yes, there's some stuff to do. You have to get your ducks in a row and do some preliminary promotional stuff. Otherwise, there's a lot of waiting. You're waiting for the book to publish. You're waiting for early reviews to come in. And, you know, my policy, my stated policy to friends and colleagues has been that I'm not going to read reviews. But this sort of thing is easier in theory than it is in practice because you have to do a lot of marketing and PR for yourself when you're an author these days, most of the time. And if a book, you know, if the book gets a good review somewhere, I sort of have to know about it so I can put it on my website and share it on social media and, you know, the things that authors do these days to try to drum up interest. So as much as I would love to divorce myself from this part of the process, I also feel an obligation to fight for the book a little bit and to try to give it its best shot out there. And it's worth noting that that's not only an exercise in self-interest, like I feel an obligation to myself and to the book and to all the work that I put into it, but I also feel like I owe it to my agent and to my publisher to advocate a little bit. So we'll see how it goes. There have not been any official reviews yet, but I have been getting a little bit of feedback from people who have read galleys, uh, almost exclusively from people I know. And <laughs> this is its own kind of mind fuck. Like the other day I got a really nice note out of the blue from a friend slash colleague who called my book uh, like, like fucking beautiful and said, you know, this person was like, I truly enjoyed it. I was solaced by it and entertained and devastated and, uh, like compared it to a, a sunrise, like this, like lovely note, right? This kind of like gushing, lovely, positive response to the book that I very much appreciated. And it made me happy. This is the, this is the conundrum, you know, good reviews, even though you want to be sort of inured to them. If, uh, unless you're like inhuman, like part Android, it's going to make you feel good to get a good review. And it's going to make you feel sort of bad to get a bad review. And it's just a, a relief when somebody likes it. You know, you, you want to think that your book doesn't suck. And even better is when it's somebody you admire who enjoys it. But the problem with the stage that I'm in now and with getting any kind of feedback from people who know me is that I can't fully trust it because what is this person supposed to say? And yes, I know they could say nothing at all, which, <laughs> which is its own kind of hell. But, you know, maybe this person is the kind of person who, from a temperament and manners perspective, feels obligated to acknowledge the fact that they have received an advanced copy and, as a matter of politesse, feels obligated to say something kind. That thought has crossed my mind, and it's not a completely crazy thought. There are people like that. People do that sort of thing. And it's not bad. It comes from a good place. 
And really, how hard is it to say something nice about somebody's art project, right? You get a galley in the mail. You, you might read it. You might flip through it. You send a little note of encouragement. So I guess where I'm at is that, you know, you can't trust reviews. This is what I know intellectually. None of it is true. This is why you shouldn't read them. You like the good ones. You don't like the bad ones. Neither is true. Yet, uh, somebody gives me good feedback, positive feedback. I tend not to trust it fully. But if somebody tears the book apart, I am likely to believe it entirely, to consider it gospel truth, to think of it as clear-eyed and hard-edged and damning. So I shouldn't read reviews. I'm just saying that here right now for the record. I don't know how to avoid it entirely, which is the problem. And I guess feedback is part of the process of putting art out into the world. And I just need to remember to appreciate all of it and to not believe any of it, if at all possible. So again, my book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out on May 10th. Please pre-order it if you can. Just go to bradlisty.com. The uh, information is all right there. If you pre-order my book and you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, just email it to letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com, or DM it to me on Twitter or Instagram. The show has a Twitter feed, at otherppl, and uh, it's also on Insta, at otherppl.podcast. So if you screen, you know, send a screenshot of the proof of purchase, I will send you a note in the mail. I'll write you a little note. I'll send you another people sticker. And I will give you a shout out right here on the show, which uh, brings me to today's round of thanks. I owe thanks to Ted McCagg, Timmy Murray, Chelsea Drysdale, Marnie Grossman, Bridget Driller, Ryan Eager, and Curtis Bixel, all of whom pre-ordered the book. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Once again, if you want to pre-order, just go to bradlisty.com. Okay, so my guest today, once again, is Rachel Krantz. Her new book is called Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. It is available now from Harmony Books, an imprint of Random House. It was an absolute delight to meet Rachel and to talk with her. This is an unusually candid book and an unusually rigorous look, not only at Rachel herself, but at the subject matter. Even for those of us who might have a passive interest in this, who might not actually have an interest in practicing non-monogamy, this is a fascinating read, and no detail is spared. It is an incredibly brave and vulnerable exploration of stuff that doesn't often get discussed. So a very valuable experience getting to pick Rachel's brain and hear about her life and her experiences with non-monogamy. All right, so here we go. This is my conversation with Rachel Krantz, and her book, One More Time, is called Open. It's being marketed as about non-monogamy, but it's really about so many different things, power dynamics in relationships, emotional abuse, coming into my queerness. Like, there's... There's just a lot. And so I, I think it's been heartening to see that different people are finding different things to relate to. The only 
criticism I've seen so far that I found interesting is just a couple people kind of questioning my authenticity, given that I was recording so much of the time I was living it and the kind of question of what was I doing it for the material. And I think that that's been interesting to see because, you know, I was warned by plenty of other um, female writers, especially memoirists, that this was that's a very common critique that happens to women who write about their lives. This idea that Olivia Sujic writes about in her essay Exposure that's really excellent on this topic where she kind of says, you know, either you're completely forthcoming about your life and you're honest about all your myriad contradictions and complexities and people label you a narcissist or disingenuous, or you try to kind of curate a more acceptable view or a kind of, you know, hold back in certain ways and people call you disingenuous. And I think that in the book, which is happening over Me Too, as I was getting increasingly bogged down in this dynamic where someone was telling me, you can't trust your own memory or judgment, I had a very like reflexive reporter's impulse to be like, okay, then I guess I need to record something like reality so that if I ever want to look back and understand what happened, I have it. And I need to, in some ways, amass evidence because I was watching the Kavanaugh hearings and women, even though there was trans, you know, records of them talking about being assaulted um, with from their therapists all these decades ago, that people were still saying, oh, you can't incriminate someone without evidence. There's not enough evidence. And so I think it's interesting to see now, if not surprising, that we put women who write about their lives often in this corner of like, if you happen to have all the evidence, which I do, hours and hours and hours of recorded transcripts, much of the dialogue in the book is based off of audio transcripts and people speaking in their own words, then potentially you're disingenuous because you were just living your life for the material. But if you didn't have that kind of evidence, your memory is called into question and you're not to be believed, right? So it's a little bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, um, that I think is interesting to watch and, and respond to. Yeah, that's well said. And I think that ultimately where I land on it, as I consider like the various nuances and aspects of it, it is, is that it's many things at once. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's the only way to write a memoir. <laughs> I have a lot of mistrust in my own ability to write personal nonfiction in the absence of like meticulous diaries or audio recordings because my memory is just too spotty. I don't have one of those memories that some people have where they just, they know, you know, and they yeah. truly do remember everything. I don't remember anything. It seems like, or not enough. And then, uh, I think there's the Joan Didion, uh, line about how writers are always selling somebody out. <laughs> I think that's true too. Mm -hmm. I think that's also true, you know? And I think that uh, the question I would pose to you is that taking into, into account that you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, and that you're doing immersion journalism, as you call it, held to a standard that is different than men typically are held to. Don't you ha have to concede that at least a little bit, there might've been some writerly part of you as you're gathering all this material and living through this. You have to be thinking s about the book 
And like, as you're getting into a situation, there had to be parts of your mind that were going, well, this would be a good scene. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's, yeah, no, I mean, and I address that in the book itself, the meta story of an agent approaching me with the idea that I should maybe one day write a book about this is very much a part of the story and part of the coping mechanism, which is, you know, I think very familiar to writers and reporters was to start viewing whatever I was going through as a sort of hero's journey. And this idea that even as things became increasingly feeling out of my control or painful or confusing, that it was all for the, this greater purpose of a a narrative that would make sense in retrospect. And I think what I say in the book is that it, the motivations fed each other symbiotically, right? So I was in this relationship with this very dominant man who clearly basically needed me to be non-monogamous if I was going to be with him. And I wanted to be non-monogamous and learn how to adapt and overcome my jealousy because I wanted to be with him and because I wanted it for myself. But um, the actual experience of it was very confusing and challenging for me when it came to jealousy. And so I think that this idea of, oh, maybe one day this will be um, a scene in the book allowed me to like push myself even further in situations where I think I would have been interested anyway, but in the same way with a lot of reporting I've done, I might not have been quite as brave to put myself in that situation or I might not have been paying as close of attention. I think that's why I love first person journalism is that that I'm very adventurous and somewhat, you know, exhibitionist in certain ways. And I love to connect, but I'm also, you know, relatively introverted in other ways and kind of fearful. And so this pretense of, oh, maybe this will be a story or, oh, I have this recorder so I can ask you all the questions I want to ask you it helps me kind of be more the person, I guess, that I I wish I always was, like, braver. So, yeah, it, it is a, a question of both and, and that's why I hear that critique, and I totally understand it and, and try to speak to that in the book. But I think any writer and journalist who writes first-person material or even novels understands that everything is potentially, everything is copy, like, Uh, Nora Ephron said, and I do think that that's a dangerous road to go down that I've since scaled back on a lot in terms of I don't, I don't record nearly as much anymore. I don't keep a diary regularly anymore, just because it was a real lesson in that being sort of crazy making. Why? I do think, I think because, you know, I've come in more to trying to integrate mindfulness and Buddhist thought into my daily life. And it's kind of the definition of grasping and like not accepting impermanence and attachment because you're just like, this moment is slipping away and I need to record it and hold on to it forever. You know, it's like this, and you're kind of potentially taking yourself out of that moment. Sometimes it's complicated because it heightens the appreciation and helps you be more present with it. Cause you're like, you know, Oh my God, the, Like I have the phrase in the book, the accidental poetry of everyday life. Once I started paying attention, it was everywhere. There was so much synchronicity and stuff that would appear to be coincidences or just poetic that I think is always there. But it was only once I was viewing life through that 
lens with a writer's eye that I saw how there's connections everywhere in every moment that are poetic. So in some ways it was a wonderful practice. In other ways, yeah, it often was a way to dissociate um, and make myself okay with things that I was not fully comfortable with or yeah, to just kind of in a way not be really very present because I was already floating outside of myself watching as this observer, even if, and I think this is the hard thing to maybe understand unless you're an artist, like even if as you're living it, it's very authentic. Like I wanted to do those things, but all those contradictions I think can exist within a person. And um, I think writers especially are always looking at their experience with that kind of part of them floating above taking notes to a certain degree. Yeah, you know, and I, I we've kind of touched on this already, but I want to read to you a line in the book that really struck me. And you say, uh, I think it's, I think I have it verbatim, but it's, a, why is a man climbing Mount Everest considered award-winning immersion journalism, but a reporter plumbing the depths of her most extreme psychose or plumbing her most extreme psychosexual depths is considered confessional erotica? Fuck that! I have to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. And that's uh, a big, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No. And then you also refer to what you're doing, uh, in your work as emotional growth as extreme sport. And then you also touched on this earlier, uh, journalism kind of as an excuse to be brave. And I, I admire it a lot. I, I think that, uh, you know, a book like this and anytime someone is really candid with me in person or on the page, I appreciate it. And I can accept almost anything from somebody who's an honest broker in that way. Uh, there's such extreme transparency in this book, or at least what feels like it. Maybe you're pulling punches that I just didn't see, but I don't know what they would be. <laughs> no, no, I really tried not to. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it's a lesson. There's a lesson in that, you know, a lesson to be brave as writers, a lesson to say things that most of us would left unsaid, would leave unsaid. Is there anything that I'm missing? Like, is there, or are there, are there any downsides? Like, do you feel like you overdid it anywhere? Are there things you wish you would have kept to yourself? I think that'll be clearer in retrospect. Um, I'm, I'm sure because with almost all my writing, there's usually things I regret in retrospect, but I just try to learn from them um, and keep kind of on the record showing my mistakes and the fact that none of us remain the same and we're hopefully continue, continually evolving our perspectives. And so even though Rachel that's written about in that book is inexact and based on as close as I could get to my truth, um, you know, and I also say there's never just one way to tell a true story either, um, which I think is true. But you know, I really got it as close to the emotional truth as I could interpret it at that moment before I turned in the manus final manuscript in 2021. And now it'll be frozen at that moment for all time, you know, and I'm sure that in a year I'll be like, oh my God, I would, I mean, I already feel certain things of like, I would have hit that point harder now that I hear this critique or I would have tried to make this a little clearer. So yeah, but I, I don't know in terms of 
huge mistakes or regrets that that will be clear until I really hear more reaction. But I do think that, you know, I appreciate you reading that quote because, you know, the book I'm referring to is Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, one of the foremost immersion journalists who I love. And I love that book. But, you know, that won all kinds of national awards and it was great reporting and a great account. But in terms of the amount of experts and uh, interviews I did, both in terms of how much I put myself on the line and interrogated myself living this story and then in retrospect making sense of it and just, you know, five years of, of reading and research and reporting went into this book. And I think that part of the political statement I'm trying to make is if it is discounted by the more prestigious outlets or something as confessional erotica or not worth taking seriously as a piece of journalism, I will probably be responding to that, you know, not in a petty way, in a, in a kind but direct way, because I do think that's indicative of this sort of way we relegate the romantic and sexual and emotional to be softer. You know, when men write about their relationships in novels, it's literary fiction. And when women do it, it's women's fiction and it's viewed as light and silly. And I think that the same thing could be true with journalism. Either you get to be a respectable, award-winning journalist like I am, or you are someone who like writes confessional erotica because you're talking about your sex life and sexual psychology and explicit detail. And I just think that really reinforces this Madonna whore binary that's bullshit because, and it silences especially marginalized people as to the truth of our lived experiences. And it makes them choose between being respected and telling the whole truth, you know, and I think especially when we have so much shame around our sexual inner lives, our grapplings with the romantic and our bodies, it's just very muzzling and negates our true experience of being alive because for everyone, I think that sex and relationships and love is what drives most interactions, most things in our life. You know, it's, it's underneath so much and that we're kind of not allowed to talk about so much. I think men included, by the way, for sure. There's certain allowances that I have to talk about the emotional that I think a lot of, and my own sexuality that potentially a lot of men wouldn't feel comfortable talking about at this point. So I think all of us know what it is to muzzle this aspect of ourselves in certain ways. And I, I think it leads to a lot of shame, which I think is ultimately a destructive emotion that results in, in violence and abuse and just unhappiness. Gaslighting. That too. Yeah. yeah. So before we move on to other things, I, I want to ask you about process a little bit more because I, I'm interested in it. I think there are a lot of writerly people listening who are curious, will be curious about how you made this book. You've talked about the recording and how much of it you amassed in the composition and research and kind of gathering phase. Like on the surface, when I hear that, I'm like, oh, that seems like a a big shit pile to deal with. Uh, can you, like, like how do you, in, in a nuts and bolts way, 
how do you deal with all these hours of audio and how do you deal with all these hundreds and hundreds of pages of journal entries and what was your process to take all of those raw materials and then refine it into something that could conceivably be read by a complete stranger and enjoyed and understood. You know what I'm saying? That seems yeah, like a heavy lift. Totally. It was, and it took years, but I appreciate you asking about it because I love talking about this. So a couple things. One was I was lucky that I had mostly done most of my journaling in Google Docs. And so I was able to go through that way and read through for the most interesting parts and kind of put it in chronological order in one master doc. A lot of the primary sources, I started looking at certain like text exchanges or conversations and also adding them to this linear primary source doc. And for what I had written by longhand, I read through them again, transcribed the most important parts, put it in order. Um, and then with the transcripts, I didn't transcribe everything, but I did transcribe too much of it, uh, wasted a lot of my advance on <laughs> getting it transcribed because I just didn't know. Like I had, I had just recorded every couple's therapy session, every one of my therapy sessions, all with everyone's consent to their credit, every, all the recording in there is with people's consent. And I just, when I looked at the pages, I was often like, I can't, I can't go through all of this. This is insane. I had a, a year to write the book, um, to file the manuscript. I was like, this is, I can't do it. So, but I was able to know just from that linear outline and from remembering things and kind of creating a timeline of the most important events that had happened over those years, like, okay, maybe I could look at this time and also, you know, look at it to kind of corroborate evidence. So even if there's stuff that's not directly quoting that I could check, like, is this actually what was happening? Cause I had these audio transcripts and then for certain um, ones that are quoted verbatim or um, close to verbatim, I had had the wherewithal, even though I was kind of like losing my shit and stoned all the time and recording was really the only thing I was doing in the, by the last two years of the relationship, I, I had kind of lost most energy to journal in many coherent ways. I, um, I wasn't writing, that's for sure, really in any clear way, but I was able to just like say, can I record this? And so I had marked certain conversations in my phone. It was all saved in like voice memos, basically, or rev, like important one, <laughs> you know, so luckily I was able to go back to the ones I had like really marked as like, this is very, because I did know as I was living it, like in the conversation towards the end of the book, that is just one of so many that is an example of how gaslighting works and the sort of intricate dynamic dance of it. I could have pulled from so much different audio, but I knew it would be just like emotionally destructive to keep going through all of it over and over and over again. And I knew I had marked this one conversation as at the time feeling very indicative of exactly what I was stuck in. And so even as I was like, I have no idea if I'm going to get out of this, if this is ever going to be anything, the reporter's mind in me did know like this was an interesting conversation and knew enough to like add that asterisk. So luckily I was able to 
keep forming this linear primary source document and then kind of use that as a outline in certain ways and see where it would benefit from building dialogue off of those transcripts versus using verbatim transcripts, verbatim excerpts from journals or text messages, emails, versus where I could just use it as a way to make sure my narrative was factual. Yeah. I, I mean, a couple things. Like something as small as like how you, how you name an audio file can end up being huge. Because I can also yeah. imagine being like, I remember this happening. I forget what day it was. <laughs> I, I don't know how to find the audio. I guess then you have the transcript and you can search through it. Uh, and then the other thing is just thinking about the transcriptionist. Talk about a job. <laughs> oh my God. I know. They must have been so confused. I mean, I even had, yeah, like some pretty explicit stuff for a couple of them. I didn't record much sex, but there are a few scenes in there with a character named Liam that I did have his consent to and are like reconstructed dialogue based on verbatim yeah, transcript. So I just was thinking, what is this transcriptionist? <laughs> they're like, either they're like, wow, my job is awesome today. Or they're <laughs> like having nightmares. I don't know. I want to talk to you about monogamy because you describe yourself as a serial monogamous prior to this relationship with Adam, prior to this adventure in polyamory and non-monogamy. And then you talk about a book called Sex at Dawn, which I must confess I have not read. But can you just kind of lay the foundation for how you, you know, I think you were in like on a more traditional track, like most people, uh, because the culture sort of primes us for that, to be monogamous and to think of romance and love and relationships as being two people. But then you start to explore, and as writerly people often do, you know, books factor into the equation. You start to think differently or uh, contemplate other ways of being but can you just give a kind of overview of that part of your education and formation sure yeah i mean it was my exposure was relatively limited but like i said i was from the bay area living in brooklyn like i knew people who were trying non-monogamy and i'd heard of the concept i didn't know anyone who had done it successfully yet um but I was curious about it, and I had read Sex at Dawn, which is sort of one of the books a lot of non-monogamous people will really point to as sort of a seminal text, which makes a mostly anthropological counter-argument to the standard evolutionary narrative that most of us are socialized with and pretty familiar with at this point that was established uh, around, you know, with Darwin and stuff of this idea of men want to spread their seed while women want to kind of lock it down and uh, ensure that they'll be taken care of once they're impregnated because, um, you know, basically we face more consequences for be having a child than, than men would. And there may very well be some truth in part to that drive but the way it's kind of been used to explain monogamy and frankly patriarchal standards of well it's natural for men to want to roam but women have this inherent interest in being more monogamous the research doesn't actually back that up like a lot of the contemporary sexual research is finding women are having 
more trouble with long-term monogamy and loss of novelty in romantic relationships that we tend to be more our sex drive is more linked to variety so i mean sex Dawn argues that it was really with the advent of the agricultural revolution that women's bodies became property to manage and paternity became more of a concern but that evidence actually points to before that point things being more communal and likely non-monogamous and less concerned with paternity. And that their argument is that, you know, then Darwin and other theorists who created this standard sexual narrative in the 1800s, that they were having their own biases that they were potentially, you know, reinforcing because they were living in a monogamous world where, men were even more superior and had more of these freedoms than than women did certainly and and there was more puritanical or victorian ideas around like women and sex so i think yeah it sort of questions the way that has seeped in as sort of this default explanation for why monogamy is natural when in fact in the natural world you know all of there's over 300 species of primates of which, you know, that's what we are. And all the ones that also live in complex social groups with multiple adult males, none of them are monogamous and only 3% of species even pair bond, let alone monogamously. And a lot of these species we point to as kind of cute monogamous examples like penguins and swans. What we actually mean is they pair bond for life the way many of us do but they are not sexually monogamous. So there's all this evidence within the animal kingdom that perhaps there is nothing surprising about our species having so much difficulty with long-term monogamy that we see reflected in the rates of cheating and divorce. Yeah, and I, like what you're talking about causes me to like think back on something I either read or heard from Terrence McKenna. Maybe he was talking about this book, I don't know, but he was... You know, in a more matriarchal society where people aren't uh, monogamous, I think the theory goes that, like, if people are having multiple partners and paternity is not as clear <laughs> or as much of an issue, and it's a more matriarchal power structure, that the men in the social group will have more of a vested interest in maintaining the welfare of the entire group, but especially the children, because nobody knows whose kid is whose, right? Mm -hmm. Is that that? that, Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one interesting thing to note that I learned in researching this book is that our two closest genetic relatives are chimpanzees and bonobos. And most people know about chimpanzees being very close to us, but bonobos are arguably even more close. It's pretty pretty, uh, close in terms of the percent and vastly understudied compared to chimpanzees by comparison for a few reasons. One is that they're very endangered, but the other is that they are a matriarchal species where the women are bisexual. They have sex at all points in their cycle, like we do. They, you know, use sex to dissolve conflict and are much less of a violent species than chimps, where it is much more patriarchal and uh, there's a lot of uh, rape and violence within that adorable looking species, unfortunately. 
And so I think you see these, that's really interesting, right? Because isn't that tension so present within us between the sides of humanity that want to go to war and dominate versus, you know, those of us that want to like chill out and make art and have sex and nature and whatever. And this idea that both those impulses are, are within us. Right. Right. And I, uh, I want to say bonobos, aren't they like the only other primate that like, what is it? They, they have sex face to face. Mm, (laughs) I don't know. I've seen pictures of like bonobos, like looking lovingly into each other's eyes. I think Mm -hmm. there's like some famous photos of that, but it's fascinating. And chimpanzees scare the shit out of me. I got to say, I, once I, once I saw those, I think it's David Attenborough, you know, videos of chimpanzees, like conducting warfare, essentially, (laughs) That was it for me. And then there's also the stories, like these horror stories of people who keep chimps in captivity and get attacked. And they are not to be trifled with, chimpanzees. Yeah. And there's a really excellent, if people want to learn more about this interview with Dr. Amy Parrish, who's kind of at the forefront of studying bonobos with another anthropologist named Dr. Wednesday Martin. And she really goes through her struggle with like getting the scientific community to pay attention to bonobos. And it just is... And this was very much backed up in in my research, how much implicit bias and sexism is baked into these fields, which makes total sense, you know, but we maybe don't think about it. And it's like, yeah, she was describing how she would come forth with this, these observations and these papers. And it was just scandalous to people because it challenged so much of what the standard narrative was of what is innate and how, how can these how can these primates be equal relatives to us when they're like kind of gay and they're just like having all this sex and they're not, you know, is so I think it, it was a good example of how, how uh, all these implicit biases affect the science, which I definitely saw reflected in my research into seeing what kind of research was out there about non-monogamy, about sexuality, that, wow, our, our knowledge is really much more limited than I even thought. And a lot of that has to do with how afraid we are to uh, talk about sex or view this as something worth funding research into. Yeah, it challenges so many societal and political and religious norms that there's going to, there's bound to be a ton of resistance. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about my experience with your book and contemplating all of this stuff. And I was trying to narrow it down. Like what was my takeaway? And what I came up with was how much work polyamory is uh, <laughs> physically. <laughs> like maybe I'm lazy. I'm like, Holy Lord, these people are having lots of sex and lots of different people and going out a lot and doing all these different things. And then uh, it's also emotional work. You know, you talked about your struggles with jealousy it's psychological, like the, te- the psychological tedium of navigating all this requires a lot of human energy. Uh, and I think, <laughs> you know, I think maybe at first blush, a lot of people will consider the moral and ethical parts of it. You know, people can debate all sorts of different ways about the morals and ethics of polyamory and whether or not it's right, wrong, this, that. But to me, it was just about like, this is a lot of work. It's a, it's rigorous. And 
uh, it requires unlearning, like cultural unlearning. Like if you're going to take this on, you basically, I think you say this, you have to ignore or unlearn what the culture has taught us uh, about love and relationships in every like movie and song that mm-hmm. we've ever watched or listened to. And in tandem with that, I would say that there is a lot of respect and admiration and even some envy in me for the education that you have gotten into uh, your own uh, like sexuality, your own psychology, and just human relationships and intimacy in general. Like you really enforced upon yourself a kind of masterclass. Uh, You've had to investigate all this. And I could not help but leave the book thinking, you know what, if Rachel ever does go into, ever does decide to just partner up and be monogamous with somebody, she'd probably be really healthy having done all of this. Like, or at least the potential would be there because you have looked carefully at yourself and you have explored all of these different things and kind of gone into the dark places in ways that most of us have not. So I don't know. Have you heard that take before or some version? I have. I have. And um, I totally understand it. I think that, um, well, the story, it was exhausting as I was living this part of my life. And I think in many ways, this book is a uh, cautionary tale. It's an example that I didn't really see very representative of a lot of the things that can go wrong if you're not in a non-monogamous relationship that has a lot of trust or good communication, um, mutual respect, that that was a lot of what added to the exhaustion. Certainly there was the exhaustion of adapting to all these things and just kind of going at a ridiculously fast pace of exploration. But it was also the exhaustion of feeling like not only was I jealous, but that jealousy was viewed as a weak and counterproductive emotion that I needed to squash if I wanted to be respected or desired by my primary partner. And so that fueled feeling even more jealous or anxious because now not only was I struggling, but it wasn't okay or um, even like morally justified to have those feelings. Um, And I think that now, you know, I'm still non-monogamous. I am in a relationship for almost three years now where we live together at this point. It's been non-monogamous the whole way through. It's obviously been a lot less than in the book because that was tiring and I had a book to write and I learned a lot of things i that didn't work for me. And it was a pandemic where I felt not willing to, for a lot of our relationships so far, risk um, physical non-monogamy before we had the vaccine. But I also found in quarantine that I was still forming intense emotional romantic relationship with someone else remotely. And once there was the vaccine that then we were able to, you know, be in person. And at the level I practice now, I guess it actually, sure, there's aspects of it that are tiring for sure. But for me personally, it's less tiring than when I was a serial monogamist because I'm not having to constantly upend my life to explore 
new connections and constantly lose my primary relationship if I want to ever have novelty again. And also just the kind of personally, like, I guess, spiritual exhaustion that I also felt from muting my desires to have those experiences and from trying to fit myself into a box that never felt quite right. So while there are things that are still difficult and require a lot of communication, I think I'm, I'm, well, I'm always humble that it could always change and I'm very agnostic about my future, but the point where I'm at now, it feels actually like the less tiring option in certain ways, even if it requires a lot of communication. So you talk about not fitting into a box, like the, a box that never felt quite right. And I, you know, you're also a journalist, an immersion journalist, as you put it, and like the personality type or, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like there, like I can see how somebody with that makeup and professional inclination, like a writerly person who's super curious and who's also young, you know, you were in your late 20, mid to late twenties, early thirties, like all of those different factors could cause the box to not feel like a fit. Mm -hmm. Am I missing anything? Like when you think of your own interest in this, and, you know, like relative commitment to it. How do you make sense of it? Is it uh, like something to do with your past or childhood? Is it, you know, this, this just kind of uh, genetic wiring to be a curious investigative person? <laughs> Is it all of the above? I'm just curious to know yeah. more about like why the box doesn't feel like a fit that most yeah. people, that most people seem to fit into. I'm sure there are lots of people who are in it and are like, this doesn't feel right, but I'm too scared to get out of it. You know? So there's probably mm -hmm. some of that too, but just love to hear you talk a bit more about that. Well, I think definitely has to do with my childhood and genetics. You know, I was talking to my mom who features pretty heavily in the book and who's pretty unconventional woman herself. And who I describe, um, you know, talking to her during this time that I came out as being in an open relationship about her past of having cheated on her uh, husband in her first marriage. And she was kind of saying to me now, after having read the book of like, yeah, I was doing a lot of the same things, but just not having the language or framework to do it in a mature way or understand it. And she was like, I wonder if my like, like horny, like adventurous genes got passed down to you. And I'm like, maybe, but also <laughs> I think, you know, I just also had this example of my, dad was her second husband. Then my stepdad, who I grew up with, was her third main partner. So I grew up, you know, going back and forth between my parents' houses. And like I say in the book, having sort of three central father figures, my dad, my stepdad, and my uncle, who I saw all pretty much equally and still care about equally or in different ways. So I think I grew up with this sense of like, yeah, there's different people who can play, you know, really important roles in your life and you can love all of them and they can bring different things into your life. And also I've noticed for me, you know, being in lockdown, especially that there are some things about, I really liked and learned from sort of the imposed physical monogamy and the being in the same place every day that there was a lot to be learned from that, but that long-term there's something that does feel 
more natural to me probably because of my childhood about not being in the same house every day or not with the same partner every day necessarily because I grew up, you know, going back and forth. It makes sense. So I think those two things impacted me a lot. And I also think that my sexual fluidity has a lot to do with the box not fitting of, you know, just being able to be attracted to all genders, potentially realizing that I found many different situations interesting and romantic and sexually exciting that I was kind of a a chameleon where it was more important to me that there was that emotional connection, that sense of novelty, of interest, of being desired, but that I could enjoy being submissive. I could enjoy being dominant. I could enjoy, you know, being in this kink dynamic or that one with this gender, that gender. And so I think knowing that about myself just continues to make me curious because it's kind of like, well, you know, that side of me that wants to try all of it, or I know that's an impossibility, but just keep exploring and see what, what else will I experience and unearth. So I want to talk about Adam next. And I know this is a memoir and that he's an actual human being, but I couldn't help but think to myself like, well, this is a great character as, mm-hmm. as I was reading. I mean, talk about a complex person and a very, um, what's the word? I guess like, a, a, I mean, attractive comes into it. I can see why you were attracted. Like what a, uh, what a powerful force he exerted on you. Uh, and also manipulative, um, a little bit t- terrifying. There's something a little bit scary about him to me uh, on the character level. And mm-hmm. I want to flag as well that you make clear in the book that you're not trying to portray him as like a two-dimensional villain and that you don't want readers to come away from the book feeling like he is that sort of uh, person. You know, there's a lot to him and there's a lot of redeeming qualities that he has as well. You know, you were with him for a while for, you know, it wasn't just because he was some kind of asshole, you know, but there's a lot going on with Adam and he's very intelligent very well read and a little bit intimidatingly. So I I found, and Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but think to myself, well, this is interesting. This is a guy who's got, he's kind of built for himself, like his own theory of the case pretty meticulously when it comes to relationships. I can't imagine he was improving this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like he had, he had done the reading basically Mm -hmm. and in an academic way, and gives him an upper hand, uh, you know, in a relationship with somebody who hasn't necessarily done as much reading. And I also found myself thinking of the kind of guys, what is it called? Those books about how to like seduce women. Right. Not that he is. Yeah, the pickup artists. Yeah, Yeah. the pickup artists and the Neil Strauss book. I remember he wrote a book about that. And I, I don't think that's exactly what Adam was, but it wouldn't surprise me if he'd read a lot of that stuff. Um, he was like very astute psychologically and also like this sexual control that he had, you know, being able to 
control his orgasms and like it's like holy christ like this is a lot uh going on with this guy but just a fascinating human being to read about and a fascinating human being i imagine to be in an intimate relationship with over years um are there any aspects of him you know in a broad sense that i haven't touched upon like i mean or you can maybe just illuminate him a little bit more for people listening yeah well thank you i really appreciate that that came through because it was really important to me to portray him in his complexity. And I found out even though I was resisting that victim villain um, narrative and dichotomy, that it's very hard not to have some part of it come off like that just by telling the facts of what happened, that that is how people will, some people will interpret it or um, yeah, that maybe even there was just so much power for me in terms of how I was structuring the story. You're just hearing from my side, although this is unusual in that he's quoted verbatim so much of the book. It is based on audio, so he does get to speak in his own words a lot. I think another thing that was very interesting about him was he, I think, kind of represents in the book in some ways what is so seductive about the patriarchy and the pitfalls and the kind of dynamic between men and women in in relationship, how that gets locked in. Because it's never just like, I think that sometimes when I was in that dynamic, I had a lot of resistance to kind of the language in which we kind of assigned a lot of blame to people who were on the uh, manipulating end or abusive end or a kind of lack of agency to the people on the receiving end. Because to me, I felt like, no, we're, I mean, yes, there's behaviors that are not okay. But in terms of as people, we are two complex, flawed people who both deserve to be loved. And there are certain things I'm getting out of this dynamic or I wouldn't be so locked in it. And I think that acknowledging that doesn't absolve people of responsibility for um, for wrong behavior, but it does complicate the narrative, I hope, and also potentially offer a path forward. So yeah, I just feel like all these things he encompassed in terms of what I later learned are traits of white supremacy culture, you know, paternalism, either or binary thinking, the idea that progress equals bigger, more um, rationality, um, you know, worship of the written word, he and domination, dominant behavior. He just was like all of those things. And it was so seductive at first because it was just like, I felt like all the things I'd been conditioned to believe a man should be, he was just embodying. And I got to, in his eyes and in contrast to him, be this kind of perfect female complement on the other end who finally, after a lifetime of feeling like always in control and overachieving and often, the, you know, the emotional guardians of my parents versus vice versa, it was incredibly relaxing and compelling to just finally someone who I trust the judgment of enough who seems secure enough, intelligent enough that I can let them steer. And I had never encountered that before. 
Okay, so I'm going to read a line to you from your book. I think I have this right. Submission psychologically changes you from a person to an object and helps to take you out of your head. That's what I think you're speaking about here. And never underestimate the joy of taking of being taken out of your own head, right? That's, that's what he was doing for you. You had mm-hmm. so much going on. You talked about being emotional guardians for your parents, overachieving, being constantly busy and occupied with work and achievement and all the energy and tedium that that entails. And then you've got this guy who's pretty masterly at communication. And like I said, he's educated himself on this stuff and sort of has his theory of the case built and can articulate it very well and has learned how to be really manipulative and to gaslight Uh, or I don't know. I don't do people learn that or some of it I think is instinctual or it's, you know, it's complicated Mm -hmm. subject matter. We're going to get into it more um, in the conversation ahead, but I just, I think I will always be fascinated by him as a character in terms of how he formed. You get to a lot of it, you know, either concretely or theoretically. And I think you make a pretty compelling case, but there's still mystery, right? I mean, even for you, there's gotta be mystery. Like how does a, how does a guy like that happen? He comes from like a, a family where his parents are together, seemingly like a happy nurturing household. And yet he doesn't want to emulate that, which isn't the typical course. I feel like a lot of times we emulate the situations that we are raised in to greater or lesser extents. Uh, do you have a, I mean, I guess maybe I I might be not remembering something from the book, but do you have a a sense of what, like, what was the formative experience that might've led him (laughs) down this road? Did something happen to this guy or did it, was it just, he read something or did a woman break his heart? Like, I think there was something where I found myself nodding in the book where you were talking, someone was telling you, I think one of the experts or academics or, you know people that you were talking to, to kind of help contextualize your experience was talking about people like Adam might not necessarily be him, but people like him, men like him often have like deep insecurities about their fears and, um, about their vulnerabilities. They have a lot of shame around it. And so they want to try to guard themselves against exposure and Mm -hmm. by kind of constructing this really meticulous like veneer you know of um detachment and high academic understanding and evolved thinking they don't have to address their own pain is that right Mm -hmm. is that an accurate characterization of what you wrote something like that definitely yeah and i think that that's why i think you know i'm saying it's kind of he represents a lot of these broader social structures because i tried to show the suffering in that what happens when you have a man who, by, because of being brilliant, basically, and because of being white and handsome and well off, everything in the and so able to uh, effectively dominate women like a natural dom, just an authority, authoritative man, and everything in the culture, at least uh, at that point, has kind of reinforced for him that yeah, he is correct. His viewpoint is kind of the rational counterpoint 
right? And like he is succeeding at all the things being a man, quote unquote, is supposed to be. He is able to control himself. He's able to not show vulnerability and all these really destructive things that men are held to in our culture in terms of not being able to express uh, vulnerability or a wide range of emotions or their own being able to admit to their own fallibility. And so I think he's this kind of extreme case of someone who naturally had the disposition to think he was right and was just so brilliant. And I think often in his family felt maybe a little bit like both that he belonged, but also like an outsider just because he was much more academic than any of them that, yeah, I don't know, it just created this cocktail of things. I also describe in the book that he early on in his early 20s or even in college, I think, had a girlfriend who cheated on him. And she told him he intuited it during sex. And she told him that, yeah, I've been sleeping with someone else. And instead of becoming angry, he found himself getting turned on. And from then on, you know, the fantasy that's explored in the book between me and him, that's kind of where it emerged from, uh, the fantasy to see me with other men and to be in competition with other men in that way. And, you know, sex researchers and psychologists will call that eroticization theory, the idea that the adaptive mind um, will take something that's potentially traumatic or humiliating and turn it into a kink because it helps you regain a sense of control over the experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think maybe tied to that is the struggle or like on a similar track is the struggle that you uh, have touched upon with jealousy, like jealousy being the hardest part of the experience for you. He didn't really have much of a, str a struggle with jealousy. I mean, I guess he had some of it, but that, that was kind of the point for him or in a lot of ways. He liked the jealousy because it turned him on and reactivated his interest in you. He wanted the competition to make it fun for him or something. Whereas when he would go off and have other relationships, that was pretty excruciating for you. That makes a lot more human sense to me. I can't, I mean, I cannot imagine watching, like, like being like, well, you know, to my wife, like, bye, honey, like, have a nice night out. <laughs> like, it'd just be really <laughs> difficult. I, it would be really <laughs> difficult, uh, to say the least. You, you write about this so eloquently in the book, but just for people listening, you talk about like the psychological and even physical ramifications of that kind of jealousy to be sitting at home while you know that your primary partner is, you know, across the country in New York or whatever with his secondary girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that jealousy was an incredibly humbling emotion for me because I just up into that point, you know, besides a few anxious exceptions or phobic moments, had by and large been able to control myself. <laughs> like to, you know, if I decided that I didn't want to behave or think a certain thing, I was more or less able to like at least make my behavior match that or my fight or flight response tamp down. But with jealousy, I was really for the first time in a prolonged way, not able to make 
what I wanted to feel and what I maybe kind of logically or ethically believed in match up with my behavior. And, you know, I write that jealousy is made all the more infuriating as you watch it invite exactly what you're trying to prevent. Like what is more unattractive than seeing someone insecure and losing their shit and trying to restrict you and all of that. And I knew that as it was happening, but I couldn't stop having outbursts anyway. I couldn't stop my stomach being upset anyway. At the same time, I found that really interesting um, as that sort of immersive journalist and also just emotional explorer. And the narrative that Adam had created within the relationship, which was that this was a more evolved way to be, a more generous way to love. And so I very much bought into that because I had felt it also on my end. Never had I felt more committed to him or in love with him than when he allowed me those freedoms because it was so attractive. It was like, wow, this person is so confident that they trust I'm going to come back and choose them again. And it kept being true. And often having those other experiences gave me a greater sense of appreciation for him at home. So I wanted to be able to return that freedom. And I saw how certainly that was probably a better long-term strategy than, you know, being jealous all the time, but it was very difficult for me to make my um, mind and body catch up with that. But you do see throughout the book, through this sort of exposure therapy, things that felt unbearable in the beginning, by the time we get towards the end of the book, I'm able to tolerate. Um, I would also say like, what's been interesting to me now is in a different dynamic, I have experienced much more uh, jealousy as turn on because I think I have a primary partner who is not as non-monogamously inclined and where I just have much more of a sense of power within the relationship and um, security. And so it's been really interesting to watch how much that changes my experience of jealousy and sexual response to the point that I'm almost like kind of rooting for him to have those experiences because it's arousing to me because I kind of want that sense of competition or less of a sense of you know, power in the dynamic, sort of the way Amalia in the book, who's one of the swingers we meet, is in a um, relationship with her husband, Rory, who's just head over heels in love with her, but she gets very turned on by him being with other people. But she kind of talks about how the reason why that is, is not because she thinks she's a naturally unjealous person, but because she feels so secure in their dynamic and is submissive and so likes the feeling of this sort of my man's going to do what he wants and other women are desiring him and it kind of reaffirms her attraction and lets her feel a little powerless all while feeling really underneath it the security that yeah but if i were to say stop he would stop immediately or you know if i were to say i'm not feeling privileged or appreciated enough that he would correct that um, and so I think you see me struggling with jealousy with Adam in this real core struggle of me wanting him to just give me that same sense of primacy and control and him kind of really resisting that and believing that it's weak of me to need that. And so we're, we're locked in this power struggle. Yeah, well said. And, you know, as you go through the book, you're kind of uh, depicting these experiences that you had at like sex parties, 
um, like hedonism in Jamaica, which is, how do you define that? Is that like a swingers resort or just a yeah, sec- lifestyle nudist resort? Yeah. 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 And I know I've, you know, I know of these things you read about these things here and there. And the word that always comes up for me is hygiene <laughs> <laughs> and it came up for you in the book too, but I'm just, I'm always just thinking like, Oh my God, like you go to one of these resorts, like who's cleaning up after all these people. And like, <laughs> all I can think are germs. That's all I can think about. Like, how did you, or like the sex party, who's the cleanup crew? Do you know what I'm saying? Like they better be good. <laughs> uh, can you talk about that part of it? Uh, just to indulge me here, because that is like a, that's a difficult one. Uh, that would really put the kibosh on a lot of the fun. It would seem. Yeah. And I'm so glad I did a lot of these things pre-pandemic because now it sounds even less appealing to me. (laughs) Um, And that was like one of my main hesitations about going to a party. Um, I hadn't engaged in much casual casual sex at all, monogamously or or otherwise. Um, And I had had a pretty severe phobia of head lice and bed bugs. And so I was like really afraid that I would get one of those things, because even though they really reinforce using condoms at a lot of those spaces and tend to use them quite religiously, I knew there's all kinds of stuff you can get that condoms can't prevent. And I was afraid of that. And it turned out rightfully so because we ended up getting scabies at one point, Uh. um, which I didn't even know to be afraid of till it happened. (laughs) And I think that that did temper me somewhat with the sex parties though of course you see later in the book not completely but i am much more cautious now i think post pandemic and just being older and maybe it not being as novel to me now that i've had those experiences i'm like okay i know i know what that kind of anonymous sex is i know what a six sum is what a threesome is you know like and it's not to say i'll never be interested again but i find myself much more drawn to emotional connection, um, more the polyamorous end of things where it's about relationships. And there are polyamorous people in long-term relationships with multiple people that work Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. are functional and healthy. I think there are a lot of people from the outside looking in who just aren't, don't know anybody who's polyamorous or if they do the polyamorous people aren't out to them. I think a lot of people in more traditional monogamous relationships or with more traditional cultural conditioning would be like, it never works. Someone's always jealous. It always implodes. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of that. And you would, you would push back against that based on your experience. Definitely. And I think that you see me grappling with that throughout the book because I sort of know I'm in this dynamic that is going to, if I were to ever write about it one day, like reinforce so many of these biases and stereotypes of like, look, it's this guy manipulating her and it's just she's jealous all the time and it's a hot mess and it looks exhausting. But also you meet couples um, like the couples I meet at the uh, Swingers Resort And many of them are not even featured in the book just because (laughs) their stories are like not interesting enough in a way on the face of it because it's like so stable and not there's no conflict or tension. And I tried to show some of the happier examples, but I did notice I wonder how 
I might have structured it differently to give more spotlight even to those stable relationships of people I know who are not even in the book who've been in long-term non-monogamous uh, situations that are quite healthy and kind of noticing my own negativity bias, my own um, Western storytelling hero's journey bias, which is very much centered around plot equals conflict, right? Intention. And so who gets omitted from that is often the people who are like stable and happy and on the face of it in terms of plot, nothing interesting is happening. But I'm sure character-wise, lots is. Um, and I and I do try to show some of those people and, and point out how, honestly, those couples in that group are the most happy long-term marriages I've witnessed up close. And they really seem to have found a way to strike that balance between um, negotiating just the right amount of a sense of danger and tension but they also feel so secure and just to see that it's possible after 10 or even 20 years with some of these people to still like look at your partner in that craving way. It was hard not to admire that of just like, wow, I didn't think that's possible because they've sort of engineered the situation where they're watching their partner be desired by new people and it creates just enough distance um, and sense of viewing them from afar as a quote unquote stranger that they can remember continually what that was like when they first met them rather than becoming a nerd to their partner. Right. It's like, it's like, you know, having your cake and eating it too. And engineered mm -hmm. is a good word, you know, mm -hmm. it's difficult to engineer. I would yes. say it's not something that it just any, anybody can do, but I, it does seem possible based on your reporting. It's hard to argue with it. Right. <laughs> Uh, especially mm -hmm. when it's right in front of you, I would I would imagine you're seeing these people interact, and you're seeing them interact in sexual contexts where other people are in the equation, and it's working. And there's mm -hmm. not people aren't throwing a fit or feeling sad or anything like that. It's uh, they're just loose and they figured out a different way to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about the people who kind of pull you aside at parties and confess to you that. They want to try non-monogamy, but they're too weak or they're too scared. This doesn't surprise me that you kind of sticking your neck out and saying like, this is, I'm out. I do this. I'm writing a book about it. This is the way I'm rolling. And to have other, <laughs> other people come to you and confess, there are different scenarios, you know, different contexts where the same dynamic unfolds. Anytime someone's courageous or super candid. I think it tends to engender candor in other people or confession from other people. But can you talk about that part of it? You know, especially now that the books, uh, are kind of, uh, rolling out into the world, you know, and people are getting a chance to really read your story. I have to imagine you're hearing from people who want to share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love it by and large. I mean, it's really fun to, because I've put myself out there, get a sense of, maybe people are feeling less shame or more seen as a result, more empowered in their own lives. Um, but also just that they start confessing all that stuff to me is interesting. Cause I'm just, I'm like, I think kind of like therapists are interested in hearing people's business. It's fun to just like, because I'm being open, other people feel they have permission to be open. And I think that, yeah, it made me realize there's a lot 
more people, first of all, already practicing non-monogamy than you would think and are just not out about it. Um, and certainly lots of people who are curious about it or wishing they could. And I talk about how like when women would find out, they would start confessing to me like all their ways they feel bored and listless and how they wish they could bring these things up with their partners, but they're afraid they're going to freak out. And then they would often also be like kind of newly flirtatious with me, like a kind of, yeah, like newly sapphic energy, even if they were supposedly straight. And then quote unquote straight men would definitely often be, you know, more uh, like, oh, okay. Like and kind of <laughs> be like, you must be more available. And, but would also more often start confessing to me that they were um, bisexual, which I thought was really interesting. I had never really met any out bisexual men before that. But once I was now out as quote unquote sexually deviant, more men felt able to express their um, repressed, often repressed longings or fluidity to me. So I found that interesting and something I explored talking about in the book. I have to believe that straight dudes, there's got to be some creepiness, right? Once they know that you're <laughs> polyamorous, they're just like, oh, it's open. She's open for business, like that kind of attitude. How do you deal with that? Um, Skillfully, usually. I mean, I, I feel like it's been interesting to see different people in interviews, just the difference between like people who are not being creepy like you and then some people who kind of take my book to be the equivalent of like wearing a short skirt and like because I've written about these things now they can like you know equate me being closer to the mic with blowing the mic like I've had someone do that and like <laughs> just be like pretty gross and um and yeah I I think luckily that hasn't been the overwhelming experience but there's there's definitely a lot of that, even just, yeah, even just in the promotion of the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think usually, unfortunately, like women are are used to <laughs> that kind of creepiness. And so it was just a continuation of that or a more obvious iteration of it. I think where it's proven to continue to be more difficult for me is how I talk about in the book the men I would start dating who didn't identify as non-monogamous, but rather just dating how they would often like put me more in a box of, well, she already has someone at home. So I don't need to be as considerate of her feelings or consider that maybe she would form an attachment to me because like she already has that. And because they're still operating in that monogamous framework that they kind of put me more in the box of like, casual sex or yeah like I say like nicely gently broken in to borrow and return and that was something I hadn't really experienced much of before non-monogamy because I'd kind of always been more I think in men's minds considered girlfriend material so that was like a really rude awakening for me to experience what it is to just kind of feel used or feel like I'm developing feelings but the other person is just not able to think of me that way or not willing to because it puts them at too much of a risk. Well, what, yeah. What about the reverse? Like where you're, if you're in, 
you know, your primary, uh, primary relationship with your partner that you live with, and then you're having, um, relationships with secondary partner, like what happens if they want more from you than you're able to give, you know, if somebody's like, I'm falling for you, what do you say? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, that hasn't happened to me yet, which I don't know what that says about me and my <laughs> lovability, but <laughs> um, I mean, I think the closest that's happened is people being like, I'm looking for a primary partner. And so I can't let myself fall in love with you as deeply as I want to, because you already have one of those. So that's kind of the way I've experienced it frame more as people kind of being like, there's kind of this implied ultimatum of like, unless you, um, you know, are willing to make me that primary person or be monogamous, I can't let this go as deep as you want. That That's more how I've experienced it. Well, and I should also say that you're, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, if you're going into a secondary relationship with somebody, you are upfront about the fact that you have a primary partner. So everybody knows yeah. going in, no, this is not something you spring on people right. like six months into it, right? No. Yeah. yeah, definitely not. But I think a lot of people are also curious about non-monogamy or they see the benefits of if they're single and um, maybe they're looking for that person, but they haven't found them yet. And here I am, you know, someone they're interested in who's offering real emotional connection as well. And it's like, okay, like this will, you know, be good for now. Like, and I think they want to see maybe this would work for them, but perhaps they find no, it doesn't, or um, that it kind of makes it clear that they're really missing having that person in their lives who's around more often. Hmm. Uh, I want to talk to you about Buddhism, which factors into this book somewhat surprisingly. I wasn't expecting it, you know, when <laughs> I kind of read the cover and the subtitle. You know, it's not like you are anticipating that there's going to be so much Buddhism, but <laughs> I share that in common with you, which gives me, um, I don't know, that, that part of it was very fascinating to me. And I've, I've been thinking about why a Buddhist framework would be interesting to you as somebody who's exploring all this stuff. I think of non-attachment, you know, not wanting to attach and then thinking about all the jealousy issues that you've talked about. I'm sure you were kind of navigating the tension between those two things, but can you just talk about your interest in Buddhism and forgive me if I'm misremembering the text, but did it predate your exploration into polyamory or was it something that happened concurrently or even after you got into it? Yeah. Um, oh, thanks for asking about this. It's fun to talk about. I, I did have an interest before um, my exploration of non-monogamy. I'd been on some retreats and, and meditated somewhat, but I had trouble establishing a, a regular practice and I hadn't really gone in depth with my study. I would go to sort of weekly like sanghas and stuff like that. And then once I fell into a relationship with Adam, he introduced a lot of Buddhist thought. Which I, which I, gotta, yeah, I, I have which, to interrupt. I was like, oh my God, this guy is just... He's got dimensions upon yeah, dimensions. Totally. <laughs> and he gave me How to Love by Thich Nhat Hanh as a sort of illustration of true love doesn't foster suffering or attachment. And, you know, as this way of kind of making the argument of if you really love me, you're not going to try to possess me and be attached. But I didn't know 
I was sort of taking his word for it and reading these books and not really studying or getting much outside context to make the distinctions and find out what does non-attachment really mean? What, what does, you know, yeah, like impermanence really mean? What it, all these concepts that I sort of was half understanding and taking his word for. And it's interesting, I later learned that that's not like a totally uncommon thing, like Joyce Maynard in her memoir, um, At Home in the World with J.D. Salinger, where it ex explores a pretty similar dynamic that she had with him. He also introduced Buddhism to her in these texts and used them as an argument for basically why she should adhere to his worldview and whatever he wanted, sort of. Um, <laughs> It's convenient, convenient so, yeah. how that works, isn't it? Right. It was important to me. And of course, we see in all these stories of like cults or spiritual communities where the, the guru ends up abusing that power or where people become kind of brainwashed and believe that they have to do whatever that they say in the spirit of openness and uh, whatever else. So my real more in-depth exploration of Buddhism came really towards the end of this journey And as I emerged from the wreckage of that relationship and tried to regain a sense of clarity or confidence in my own mind, meditation became a really important part of that. And my relationship with monk Tashi Nima, who's in the book and who we later become a real mentor and who I've done dozens and dozens of interviews with and attended his Sangha for the last several years, um, multiple times a week, just to kind of learn more about um, these concepts and, and actual Buddhist texts and thoughts, some of which I find very useful, some of which I don't necessarily adhere to or find um, speaks to me. But yeah, I try to illustrate for the reader as I'm grappling with this, like, okay, what is non-attachment? What, what do these terms actually mean and, and how do we untangle these complexities of don't believe your thoughts and your initial emotions and reactions and this idea that potentially with mindfulness, you, you might be able to have some degree of control over your mind. How do we separate that idea from someone telling you that, in, that emotion is incorrect and irrational and you should be able to control it and that should not be in your mind because it's a pretty subtle distinction and I think you see throughout the book the ways in which like these ideas and concepts can be yielded quite effectively to invalidate someone's lived experience right well said and I think I found myself trying to tease apart some of the Buddhist stuff that I've read and listened to over the years Uh, with the experiences that you're describing in the book and trying to like figure out like wh what would Buddhism say about this? You yeah. know, because I know like, you know, you mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh and I've, I've read a lot of him and listened to a lot of him and he has the, um, what is it? The five precepts. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes 14 too, but it's basically like an ethical framework for how to live a life that is beneficial and does not cause suffering. And one of the, you know, precepts has to do with sexual misconduct and the way that mm -hmm. sexual misconduct can bring suffering to people we care about. And so there's that part of it where I go, okay, well, you know, maybe in polyamory, if you're, even if you're open about it, if there's a level of obfuscation or manipulation, 
or inattention to somebody else's feelings, even on a subtle level that it could then escalate, you know, it could become problematic basically and get mm -hmm. complicated pretty quickly. But then <laughs> there's the other part of me that's like, well, yeah, you don't possess somebody. And if you are really open and you are in a relationship with somebody where polyamory is on the table and carefully communicated about and mindfully communicated about, maybe Buddhism would say that, okay, then if that's the way you want to handle your relationship, as long as you've done so mindfully and lovingly, there's no, there's no moral or ethical issue. Like, mm -hmm. is that closer to your understanding of it? And I'm curious to know what your mentor, what's his name again? Tashi. Tashi. Yeah. What is Me Tashi? Mean. Yeah. What does he said about this? Yeah. So I actually have him talking about this towards the end of the book and we've done a lot of talking about it since. And his distinction is, well, first he says, he's like, well, Buddhism tends to suggest celibacy or monogamy, but that's simply because they're less complex. It's like, do you want zero problems, one problem or two problems <laughs> or three problems? Right. But he was also like, uh, you should go with whatever brings less suffering in your life. We wouldn't have a problem with non-monogamy if it's bringing about less suffering. And the distinction he makes is that what matters is your intention and how it meets the result. So if someone is um, using monogamy as a way to entrap someone or manipulate someone or possess them, that's not right. If someone's using non-monogamy as a way to do the same things, that's not right. Um, basically that for some people, the path of more love and less harm is going to be non-monogamy and those people should go ahead with that. And for others, it will be monogamy or celibacy and they should go with that. Um, so he was very non-judgmental about the whole thing. He also made the important distinction that non-attachment is not the same thing as indifference. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter to you whether you associate with harmful people or uh, substances indiscriminately. It's not the same thing as dissociation. Non-attachment is simply recognizing that everything is impermanent and changes and there's nothing you can really do about that and not forcing a particular outcome onto anything. But because of that recognition of impermanence, it should actually afford you ideally more strength to recognize when a situation is causing unnecessary suffering, when someone is being harmful, and for you to step away and have protective boundaries. And he talks a lot about being able to you know, have compassion for people who cause harm, but that sometimes that needs to be from afar, that it really has to start with affixing your own oxygen mask first, but that the concept of having compassion for those even who cause suffering or harm is not the same thing as absolving them of responsibility for their actions. It's just recognizing that they are caught up in confusion and also deserve compassion and if you feel that way, instead of having all this anger towards them or, or vengeful feelings, you often find that you're going to have more energy to actually, um, you know, talk about why their behavior was harmful, uh, talk about your own experience, maybe address these behaviors on a systemic or personal way and to have the necessary boundaries in place. It affords you more energy because you're not using it up hating people. So where do you, I mean, you go to the, you've been on retreat, you, in, you know, go to Sangha meetings pretty regularly. 
you meditate every day? Yeah. And it's had a, a positive impact for you? Very. Yeah, incredibly. Um, I think that also some of the things that uh, I've learned from Tashi and also the teacher Tara Brock in terms of practices that help cultivate appreciation and gratitude have also been incredibly important to just kind of helping combat the embedded negativity bias and anxious responses that are in our brain. So like one thing I learned is that, you know, our brain more readily encodes negative memories and experiences because it's trying to like basically help us avoid those in the future. Whereas positive things don't tend to really get uh, encoded in working memory unless we make a deliberate effort to savor them. And so having practices where you're really like pausing and letting it sink in and form that neural pathway is really important. Um, so I have practices like when I see a bird land outside my window on the tree when I'm writing or working, I try to stop what I'm doing and pause and just savor being with that bird in that moment. Um, and it's usually only like 10 seconds, but I've found that practice like helps continually snap me back into um, the present and just to a sense of appreciation about my life. And also the practice of keeping a gratitude journal, writing down five good things that happen every day. It kind of retrains your mind to be on the lookout for the good because we're so bombarded with everything that's going wrong. And that's not to say we should be Pollyanna and like, you know, ignore injustice where we see it, but rather that if we only focus on the negatives, first of all, we're not enjoying our lives and doing justice to the fact that we're most, you know, likely if we're in the situation where we have the capability to do a gratitude practice, one of the incredibly lucky humans that does have the time to pause and appreciate a bird or fresh air or sun on our skin or the part of our body that didn't break down or the fact that there's vaccines or any of these things, like so many things are going right every day. And I think the more I've made a deliberate effort to also recognize and appreciate and enjoy and savor them, I find the more energy I have to combat the things that aren't going well because I'm not as constantly filled with despair and feeling overwhelmed, but rather the sense of like gratitude and like, how can I help others also feel more free and be able to enjoy these things in their lives? Yeah. I've been, me I've been trying to memorize gathas lately. These like little small poems. Uh, mm. There's like a book of them for like every little mundane daily thing, like washing your hands, opening a window, walking things like small things that you do all the time that you just don't consider all that special. And, uh, essentially, and I know you probably know this, but if people listening don't know this, but like, there's these, there's short poems, like almost like haiku length kind of poems and you memorize them. And then as you're doing these things, you silently recite them to yourself to snap you back into re you know, the moment. I find that useful. I've got to get better at memorizing. My memory sucks. I wish I was one of these people who could just read something once and have it, but I'm set, yeah. like walking around trying to remember and then, you know, cross-checking myself on my phone and, you know, eventually I'll get there. But I think that one of my favorite lines is that 
forgetfulness is the opposite of mindfulness. And if you hate the word mindfulness, it just means being like awake, you know, like mm -hmm. actually knowing what's going on outside of yourself and inside of yourself versus being lost in the jumble of thoughts and kind of inner monologue that we all tend to live inside of. And, uh, I forget a lot, you know, this is why we need these things to try to like help ourselves out of that forgetfulness. Um, I think I want to talk briefly, uh, before I let you go about your professional life, because, you know, obviously you're a journalist and you've written this book length work of immersion journalism, but there's much more to the story than that. You are the namer of bustle, the online magazine and one of its three founding editors. Um, can you just give listeners, you know, especially those listeners who might be like, how do I do this? I want to be a journalist. You know, can you just give them a sense of like the, the arc of your career so far in, in ways that fall outside the boundaries of this book? Sure. Um, I had an unusually early start because I was in a program in high school called then youth radio, now wire media that trained young people in how to be journalists, mainly for radio. And when I was in college, I ended up covering the Supreme Court ruling and meeting someone there who um, had a whole stack of FOIA documents about his time being abused in the military during the era of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. There was this commander who was doing really sadistic Abu Ghraib-level torture of his own his own people under his command and someone ended up committing suicide within the group. And this whole thing had been investigated by the Navy and reached the joint chief's staff and like dropped and there had been no accountability. And he had all these documents and no one had looked into it basically. And I luckily with the support of YR media and like them putting two producers to help me on this. And we ended up, you know, working on this story of uncovering this for six months and um, partnering with NPR and it became like a national story and helped with some momentum into dismantling Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so I had this really early recognition early on of like all these international awards for investigative journalism when I was 22. And it was pretty amazing, but also overwhelming. And from having had that experience, I knew that I wanted to continue being a journalist, but that not that kind of journalist, it had been too much. Like I was having nightmares from them describing all this graphic abuse and violence they'd incurred. And what had been the most meaningful part of it to me was kind of people being able to share stories and feel like it was being heard and that I was going to go forward and like turn this into something that was a story worth telling, kind of validating their experience. So I knew I would be interested in like the human interest side of, of journalism and investigating things deeply, but probably not, you know, stuff where I'd be having to call the military too much on a regular basis and all of that. Um, and then I got recruited by this then unnamed website to start, um, yeah, a large scale women's website it was by the founder of the site Bleacher Report and was kind of taking a similar SEO driven model um, to try to kind of be the top women's website. And beyond his model, which was very high output and 
um, strict in certain ways in terms of what content we were going to do for the first years, especially was very um, loose and was very fun because I got to just like try a lot of different things and push boundaries and see what would stick. But yeah, so anyway, in terms of advice, I'm not sure because I feel like I've had a pretty lucky and untraditional trajectory. But I guess my advice would be to follow what most interests you to follow your sense of like what opportunities might bear fruit, even if they seem a little riskier, if they really feel like stories worth pursuing or opportunities worth pursuing to maybe go for that. And then to always like ask for help along the way, find mentors. I've been lucky to have mentors in my career, but I feel like I've also been very proactive about that, that those people have not come to me. I've actively sought them out and reached out to people whose work I admire and that that really helps to have those relationships as well. Yeah. Why, I mean, I've, I've said this in the past, like half kidding. I'm like, well, where's my mentor? Where's my Yoda? Like they never show you up. You got to go to them. You got to go to them. Okay. Yeah. Lesson learned. I'm going to have to mm-hmm. figure out how to get in touch with, I don't know who it'll be. I'll have to make a <laughs> list. Uh, well, I have loved talking with you and I really enjoyed your book. It was very uh, fascinating. It was a big, like I was on the emotional roller coaster of it with you, you know, on a character level. And there's so much going on in this book that makes for a satisfying and edifying read. And you really did the work. There are not many corners cut, if any, in in this book. And kudos to you for that. And also kudos to you for taking the risk uh, to be this candid on the page and to be this vulnerable on the page and to be patient with my questions on a podcast and to just kind of talk about this stuff. I think sunlight is a great disinfectant and it's good to talk about stuff, uh, especially stuff that doesn't normally get talked about. So, um, I don't know, congrats and thank you and best of luck with it. Thank you so much. That really means so much to me coming from someone whose podcast and work I admire and, um, yeah, just thank you for asking these thoughtful questions and engaging so deeply with the book. It really means a lot to me. It really, really does. So I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, there we have it. That is Rachel Krantz, and her new book is called Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. Out there now from Harmony Books. You can find Rachel on the internet. Her website is racheljkrantz.com. She's on Instagram, and you can follow her on Twitter, too. Her handle over there is at Rachel Krantz. Once again, the book is called Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. Go get your copy. Read it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show, more than 750 episodes and counting, all available to you free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you enjoy this program, you can support it for as little as $1 a month, and I hope you'll do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. $1 a month, 3, 5, 10, 20, whatever you can swing. 
And as you move up the scale, you get stuff. A book club subscription, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug. I will send you a note. I will sing you a happy birthday on your birthday, etc. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to pre-order my novel, just go to bradlisty.com. And if you send me a screenshot of the proof of purchase, I will send you a note. I will send you another people sticker. What do you think about that? The Other People Podcast has its own app. It's free. Go search for it by name wherever you get your apps. The Other People Podcast. Uh, what else? Oh, it has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? Go search for it by name at YouTube, Other PPL, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's free, and it helps. It also helps if you leave a review for the show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Rate the show and review it. It helps us in the uh, algorithm. A lot of great stuff coming up on this program. I'm excited about it. I've got some conversations in the works, in the can, that I will be sharing with you soon. And I'm not going to say much more than that. Do I need to give you the names? Or can we just let it be a surprise? But definitely some shows... And one show in particular, I think that's coming next week, that is inspiring and good for people creatively, which I want to try to do more of. Episodes and conversations that help to stimulate people's creativity and give them possibly some new perspectives and strategies. All right? So there's that. I don't think there's anything else. I think I've reached the end of the line here. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. 